Welcome to the Mulcahy Law Firm podcast. For over 25 years, Mulcahy Law Firm has helped plan communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. The antenna bar Zoom, Facebook Live, First Friday free call-in, videos, and podcast is to provide a forum for board members and community managers to receive answers to HOA and condo legal questions. Please note, the content in these sessions are general in nature and is not intended to and should not be relied upon or construed as legal opinion or legal advice regarding any specific issue or factual circumstance. You should directly consult with an attorney for advice regarding your individual situation. Welcome to the podcast. Here's Beth Mulcahy. Welcome to our firm's virtual First Friday free call-in. Thanks so much for being here today. First, I want to start out by wishing everybody a happy Halloween. I don't know if people in your neighborhoods are now um, starting to decorate, but it's a fun time of the year for everybody. So hopefully you guys are doing some community building in your community right now. I know a lot of our clients have done that over the years, and it's been a really great community building thing to do. Okay, let's get started with our questions today. We have a lot of questions. So I know that some of you are joining us here on Zoom, and some of you are joining us here on Facebook Live. So welcome to all of you here today. My name is Beth Mulcahy, and I'm the founder and senior partner of the Mulcahy Law Firm in Phoenix, Arizona. I've worked with as their legal counsel, HOAs and condominiums throughout the state of Arizona for over 25 years. It's gone by really fast, actually. I can't believe I have a 25 in front of years practicing law now. My firm currently represents over 1,000 community associations throughout the state of Arizona. And some of you may know me from the virtual classes that I teach on a monthly basis. Um, so you have a partnership that we do with neighborhood services departments from all around the Valley and in Phoenix, Arizona, and all the surrounding cities. And also we do our first Fridays, like today, the first Friday of every month. So welcome to our firm's virtual first Friday free call-in. First Fridays are a great time for board members, managers, and homeowners to have your questions on Arizona law regarding HOAs and condos answered for free. Here's how First Fridays will work today. If you haven't already done so, please submit your First Friday questions in the Q&A box on Zoom or in the comment section on Facebook Live as soon as possible. And I'm going to answer all questions between now and hopefully 10 o'clock a.m. But I promise I won't sign off until I answer every question this morning. Just a quick and friendly reminder, because we have so many questions that come in on the first Fridays, this first Friday opportunity is limited to one question per association. And if you plan on submitting a question live during this session, please include the name of your HOA and condo and your current role when you submit your question. Don't worry, we don't use any names of HOAs or any names of people who are submitting the questions. It's just helpful for me to know whether a board member or manager or a homeowner is asking the question. If you have more questions than the one questions today, don't forget to tune in to our upcoming virtual classes, which we'll be talking about in a few minutes. But you also can find more information on that on our website at mokihilawfirm.com. And that has a full listing of all of our upcoming seminars. First, talk a little bit about the 2022 legislative update. Um, All of the new laws, all five of the new laws that were passed in the 2022 legislature have now become law. Those all went into effect on September 24th. And our firm is going to be sharing our new cheat sheet, which we um, issued regarding five new laws pertaining to HOAs and condos. They're important for you to take a look at this handout. I'm going to be sharing it with you on Zoom and Facebook Live. And it's a really good summary of the new laws Just very briefly, there's a law that says planned communities have to allow artificial turf um, under certain conditions. The owner wants to put artificial turf on their property. 
There's also a law that talks about first responder flags now being protected and associations can prohibit those. Political signs on for association matters or association issues can now be protected and owners are allowed to place those on their property. That's kind of an interesting development. So political signs for board elections in your community or voting for or against a special assessment, owners can now put those signs on their property. And owners have a right to peacefully assemble on your common areas to discuss association issues. That's kind of a newer law that just passed in September. And lastly, some restrictions by cities and towns to crack down on short-term rentals and to make it more difficult to have bad renters and short-term rentals in cities and towns and counties across the state of Arizona. So lots of great information this year in the legislature, and we hope you'll take a deep dive into our legislative date sheet sheet, which we just shared with you. Okay. Also, don't forget to tune in to our firm's virtual HRA Academy class number 10 on October 18th, Tuesday, 11 a.m., where we're going to discuss and answer questions regarding enforcement of your association's governing documents and also how to collect delinquent assessments. We're starting to see a big uptick in number of owners that aren't paying assessments with the increased inflation rates and other things going on in our economy. So this is definitely a class you won't want to miss. We're going to give you the ABCs of how to enforce matters in your association for owners who are violating the association's documents and what legal remedies you have. And then we're also going to talk about how to get owners to pay assessments in a timely manner and how to collect delinquent assessments from owners who are delinquent in the payment of assessments, fines, and other amounts that are owed to the association. So that'll be a great class. Hope you'll tune in on October 18th at 11 a.m. Our office is going to be sharing our upcoming events with the link to you now on Facebook Live and also on Zoom. Okay, let's get right into the questions here today. We have a lot of questions. We have 44 questions this morning, which is awesome. And I think I'm going to get a count pretty soon of how many people have joined us this morning. So I'll be sharing that with you shortly as well. Our first question talks about our CCNRs were written in 1998 and expressly forbid renting a guest house. Do you know of recent Arizona law supersedes our 1998 CCNRs? An excerpt from our CCNRs is rental of any guest house is prohibited. The occupancy thereof shall be limited to members of the owner's family, guests, and servants. Okay, so I think that the CCNRs that were written in 1998 contained the provision are still valid. I'm not aware of any Arizona law that would supersede that provision in your CCNRs. Okay, I just got a little update. We've got about 45 attendees on Zoom and more of you joining us on Facebook Live this morning. So great turnout this morning for our first Fridays. Our next question is from a community manager. Our annual meeting notice states credit in the amount of $40 will be applied to the board member's account for each regularly scheduled board meeting attended. Our monthly dues are $40 a month. This is an offer for HOA board members to skip all yearly dues if all 12 monthly meetings are attended in a year, is this legal? A couple of things that I would say first, at first glance would be, this is not something that I would recommend. This is very unusual. Most associations, or I think 99% of associations do not pay board members to serve as board. Um, there is a provision in the Nonprofit Corporation Act that says that if the bylaws allow compensation, that 
then you can compensate board members for their participation being on the board. But again, it's pretty unusual. We don't see that very often. So I don't know. I know your annual meeting notice says this, but I don't know that in your association's bylaws that this is something that's a compensation is allowed for serving on the board. But without that, you can't, you cannot pay the board members just for attending board meetings or participating as a board member. Okay, next question. Question three, a board member, our HOA, CCNR state that there could be no rentals for less than 30 days. Is this considered short-term under the law? And how does the new Senate bill affect owners who want to rent their condos? Okay, so if your CCNR say no rentals for less than 30 days, you have a short-term rental prohibition. So owners cannot rent their property for less than 30 days pursuant to your CCNRs, and that's a binding contract. So it is considered short-term under, in my opinion, under the law in Arizona. How is the new bill pertaining to responsibilities for landlords and owners who want to rent their condos? How is that going to affect them? And how is it going to impact the association? It's also a good kind of follow-up question on that. Owners who are renting their property as a short-term rental in Arizona, starting September 24th, have some additional responsibilities for notifying their city, town, or county of the fact that they're renting the property. And so what I would recommend to owners is to reach out to the city that your property is located in or town that your property is located in and find out what sort of restrictions or ordinances they have passed in response to the Senate bill that passed and became the law on September 24th. There may be a requirement for you to get a permit. There may be a requirement for you to get insurance, additional insurance, if you're not using like a, a national or a, or a rental agency that has their own insurance that passes through to you. You are, may have to give the names of the adults that are going to be, excuse me, but the emergency contact information for the property and the phone number, the way that a person can be reached in the event that there's an emergency at the property. So there's going to be additional burdens on the owner landlord to provide information to cities, towns, municipalities, county. So how this impacts the association is if there's a problem on the short-term rental and your city, town, or municipality has ordinances that require permit or require emergency contact information, you will be able to make complaints to the city, town, or municipality regarding the short-term rental and the city, town, or municipality hopefully has some teeth in their ordinances that will require the, to comply or are going to get big fines assessed against them by the city, town, or municipality. Okay, next question from a new board member. Can harassment be upheld in court simply by someone claiming they feel harassed by receiving violation notices? Or do specific actions or words need to have occurred for it to be upheld in court? When homeowners use the word harassment, with our property manager after they receive notice for a documented violation, she retreats and stops sending notices or following up with them regarding their non-compliance to our governing documents and processes. Okay, we have a great cheat sheet on this topic. It's called Dealing with Difficult People and Harassment. And we're going to be sharing that with you here shortly. And it, it defines specifically what the meaning of harassment is under Arizona law. Um, and it talks about you know, what the standard is, what 
the requirements are in order to get an injunction prohibiting harassment against another owner or against another person for harassing you. Sending a letter regarding a documented violation to an owner is not harassment under Arizona law. That is enforcing our contractual responsibilities as board members and the manager has a responsibility to do that. So if an owner is claiming that they're being harassed just because they receive a violation notice, in my opinion, that's not considered harassment. Harassment would be somebody making a threat of physical harm or actually physically harming another person. So be like pushing them, shoving them, or, you know, leaving a voicemail saying, I will take care of you or, you know, sorry. Those are the type of things that would rise to the level of harassment. And so I think what the board needs to do is have a discussion with the management company, maybe even this property manager supervisor, to talk about why the manager has stopped sending violation notices. And maybe if the manager feels uncomfortable about dealing with this particular owner, maybe this matter needs to be escalated to the association's attorney to handle the violation. Okay, question number five. We have a manager who's responding to us. Uh, three positions are up for re-election. Three people on the ballot. First two candidates get votes, but the third candidate receives no votes. Do they still get elected since there are three positions up for re-election, even though no ballot voted for the third candidate? Okay, that's a really odd facts pattern because you would think that the third person that got no votes, like, why didn't they vote for themselves? Sorry. All they needed was one vote to be elected. So if I were looking at this issue, what I would do is I double check the bylaws. And I mean, my I don't have your bylaws in front of me, but in order to be elected, you have to get at least one vote to serve on the board. More likely than not, this person did not get elected, third person that did not get any votes. The board likely has a provision in their bylaws that gives the board the authority to appoint somebody and to be able to serve in an open board position. So an option that the board could do would be after the annual meeting to appoint this third candidate who didn't receive any votes to the board, although there's no obligation to appoint that candidate. And maybe there might be a reason not to appoint that candidate if they didn't get any votes. So something to think about. But those are the different options here. The next question from a board member and one of my favorite clients. So great to see her today. We recently had a pole owner that decided that he did not like a tree that was next to his property. This tree was in an HOA common area, so he proceeded to remove the tree. Uh-oh, that's bad. Can we as an HOA charge him for the replacement or fine him for the removal? And if so, how much is allowed? Okay, this is a, an interesting question. The tree's on the common area. It's obviously the association's property. Most associations documents, CCNRs, have a provision in there that says that if an owner causes damage to another owner's property or to the common areas, that the association can charge the owner for that damage. So you might have a provision like that in your documents that would allow you to charge the costs to replace the tree. Of course, you're going to have to have evidence that this person did it because they may, unless they've admitted to it, they may say they didn't do it. Um, maybe you have a picture of a tree removal company. Maybe your pictures of the owner that removed it doing it. That obviously be enough evidence if someone missed to it. You also could find 
the owner for a violation and that amount that would be pursuant to the CCNRs for causing damage to the common areas. Again, I would limit the fine to the cost to replace a tree of similar size and similar type in that same area. Now, you might want to really think about talking with this owner about, okay, why did you want this tree removed? Maybe the tree was dumping a bunch of leaves in their pool. And so when you put the tree back in, you may want to really think about the placement so that it doesn't cause that same issue to arise again in the future. Maybe the tree is causing the wall to lift and then the owner doesn't like it. So try to, obviously this is bad behavior. I don't like to hear this owner did this, but try to make this a win by talking with the owner, get the owner to reimburse the association costs. Maybe you could put it a little further away, but still on the common areas. If the owner just completely denies that they did it, you will need to get legal counsel involved and I can help you with contacting the owner and sending a letter on that. Okay, next question, number seven. From a board member, six years ago, we added two pickleball courts to our recreational area, which is close to some homes. Now, a homeowner who was a resident when the courts was built is threatening to sue if we don't shut the pickleball courts down or move them due to noise. Can this owner arbitrarily sue after six years? He isn't interested in noise abatement. He wants them gone, and we cannot come up with a compromise. Okay, noise issues are always a complicated and difficult issue. Um, a couple of questions that I would want to know are the other homes that you mentioned here. Are they also complaining about the noise? Do you have set hours when pickleball can be played? Can be played any time of night, but even under the lights, alone at pocket night, that might be considered unreasonable. So hopefully there aren't other complaints. I don't know if this, I guess the whole was a resident and apparently in that lot next to the pickleball courts and that owner may have objected at the time, maybe didn't object. Can they object now or arbitrarily sue after six years? I don't think that they can sue to say that the decision by the board six years ago was a bad decision because the statute of limitations likely has run on that. But they could potentially sue for creating a nuisance if there is a noise issue. So if I were looking at this issue, what I would do is I would look at have there been other complaints from the other neighbors who are close to the pickleball courts. Do you have reasonable time times where pickleball can be played? I know where I live, we have two pickleball courts and you cannot start playing pickleball until after 9 a.m. And we don't have lights on the pickleball courts because we don't want people playing pickleball after dusk. If the noise issue is becoming, you know, other people are complaining about it, you may want to bring in a sound expert or a noise expert to measure the decibel level to see if it's outside the normal range. We've done this in other pickleball cases and that it is not outside the normal decibel range. And that would be possibly a good defense if this continues to threaten you. One thing I want to mention is you may want to think about notifying your insurance carrier that this owner may possibly sue you in the future. Probably have a provision in your insurance policy that requires notice anytime an owner is threatened to sue you. This might be one that you want to escalate right to your bill counsel for your association. Okay, next question, number eight, is from a homeowner. Over our 1998 CCNRs explicitly state rental of any guest house is prohibited. 
The occupancy therein shall be limited to members, owners, families, guests, or servants. Question and type. Our question is, does ARS 9-500.39 override this language or do the CCNRs prevail? I don't have that ARS section right in front of me, so I'm going to ask my office to just add it to the script and then I'll come back to this question at the end. Okay, so next question is for a board member. Number nine, our HOA restricts rentals to a minimum of 30 consecutive days. My understanding of Senate Bill 1168 is that it's limited to rentals under 30 consecutive days. Is this correct? That Senate Bill 1168 is not applicable to our HOA. I don't have your association CCNRs, so it's hard for me to understand where exactly you have that minimum rental period. When we look at Senate Bill 1168, it's going to be restrictions that the city, town, or municipality places on the landlord owner. And so we'll want to see how the city, town, or municipality structures ordinances. How do they define short-term rentals? I'm in full agreement that a short-term rental is typically defined as less than 30 days or minimum 30, less than 30 days. And so... It's possible based upon how they word their ordinance that it could apply to just a short-term rental that is less than 30 days, where they could define short-term rental as nightly. I don't, it just depends on how it's defined by each ordinance. Okay, next question, number 10. Let's see, is, would it be legal for the HOA board, and this is from a member of the community, to approve a transfer fee on home sales in an association and directed to the golf club organization, one that's a 501c4, um, and that says golf is a 501c7 court. And the statute regarding transfer fees or capital improvement fees, which is ARS 33-442, mentions the fees touch and concern the land. Fee charge may not be payable to a third party or a declarant, unless that third party is specifically authorized in the CCNRs to manage the plan of development. And any such fear charge that is imposed by a document that is payable to a nonprofit for the sole purpose of supporting rec activities in the association. So your question is, can our board use the transfer fee or the capital improvement fee to direct it to the golf club organization? So I don't know if this golf club is like part of your community, meaning is it an amenity for your owners or is it like it's a separate entity, but maybe it's exclusive use for your owners. You know, and I don't know what your CCNRs state on this. Your CCNRs authorize you to charge this fee and then does it comply with 33-442 and does it authorize you to move this fee to a third party for supporting an activity in the association? So lots of questions that I don't have answers to in response to your question. But generally speaking, as long as the association complies with this 33-442 Arizona revised statute, and it specifically lays out how the fee is going to be used. It should be fine, but I'd have to know more information. Okay, question 11 from a board member. The statutes state that before going into executive session, the board must state what subjects are to be addressed. If the board takes up a subject improperly, i.e. not one of the five subjects allowed, can I talk with homeowners about it? Moreover, I've been told that any action taken in such improper executive session is void. Is that correct? Okay, a couple things. So we're talking about executive sessions. And 
What I would recommend to all associations who are doing their notice of executive sessions is to list in the notice that you will be talking about one or all five of the sections in the Arizona Revised Statutes that you're allowed to talk about in the executive session. That way, when you go into the meeting, you can discuss any of the five areas. If anything should come up regarding any of those five areas, that's just a safe thing to do. Good best practices to implement. Now, if your association, in your case, the question is, okay, our association didn't put that in the notice. It did not say that we will be talking about one or all five of the exceptions to go into executive session where it's just the board. They maybe just put one of them down. But during that meeting, it's limited to the discussion of just that one topic because that's all you notified your owners of. Does that mean that as a board member, you can talk, and let's say your board goes forward and you talk about another topic that you didn't properly notice. And it's an executive session topic, but you didn't tell the owners you were going to talk about it in the notice. Can you, as a board member, now talk about the homeowners with it because it wasn't in the notice? No. Okay, anytime that you're hearing information in an executive session, and it's an executive session topic, you should not be giving that information to anybody, your spouse, third parties, other homeowners, that information is executive session. Now, I don't disagree with you that it was improper for your board to talk about a topic during executive session that wasn't notified to the homeowners, you didn't notify the homeowners, you ready to talk about it. That's a mistake, but it doesn't equal that you can go tell all the homeowners about it. But is the next question is, if we take an action in an improper executive session, is that action void? So, I mean, that's kind of an open-ended question. But if the example is, okay, we went into executive session to get advice from our attorney regarding somebody who's going to sue us regarding the pool not being warm enough. And while we noticed it, or we're going to be getting legal advice from our attorney pursuant to the number one on the executive sessions statute. And while we were there, we crossed over and talked about an owner who was delinquent in the payment of assessments, separate owner. And we decided that we were going to have the attorney make a settlement offer to that owner who's delinquent. Does that make that action improper? No. From a practical standpoint, no. Does it mean that you didn't properly notice that you were going to talk about that? Yes. It's just the type of thing that if a board came to me on this after the fact, I would say just do it correctly in the future. But I don't think it, it voids that action that I, in the example I just gave you. Okay, next question from a resident. Number 12, if a board member pushes or shoves a homeowner, is there a law or mechanism that states that the board member must resign immediately? Um, I'm very sorry to hear that that's happened. That is not appropriate behavior by a board member or a homeowner at a board meeting. To give you a short answer, does that mean the board member must resign immediately? No. Does it mean that the board member acted improperly and was out of line? Yes. I think that there should be an apology. I think that association's legal counsel should be involved in this matter. An apology from board member to the homeowner. I think we should notify the insurance carrier that there may be potential litigation on this. I think there should be a hard look at whether this board member is, shouldn't resign on their own volition or the behavior and, and probably the attorney for the association 
can assist with talking with this particular board member about the board member's behavior. If the board member does not resign, this might be something where petitions circulated to remove that board member from office pursuant to state law. But this is not appropriate behavior. And if the owner was the recipient of the push or the shove, they likely will have the right ability to go get an injunction prohibiting harassment in justice court against the board member. Okay, next question from a board member. Our HOA CCNRs are 40 years old. Is there a publication that is available that addresses changes in the revised statutes that would help clarify our board's understanding of our governing documents? So our cheat sheets would be a very good publication, group of publications that could help you better understand changes in the law over the, the past 40 years. Really, we didn't start to see, I mean, the Condominium Act wasn't even created until 1986. So that's probably where you'll want to start. The Planned Communities Act was later than that. But the best advice I can give you is you really need to bite the bullet and hire an attorney to help you with the amendment process of your CCNRs. We have a great cheat sheet called Amending CCNRs Five-Step Plan that you can find on our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. That would be a really good starting point for you. I think probably the most cost-efficient way to do this would be to have the attorney redline your association's CCNRs with the changes that have been made in the law over the past, you know, since basically 1986, and then give those changes back to your redline form. And then follow our five-step plan. It's a bulletproof, surefire way to amend your CCNRs, and it works. So I hope you all look at that cheat sheet. Okay, our next question, number 14, from a board member. Are living rules necessary? It seems our communities are in regurgitation of the CCNRs. Board has worked hard to eliminate petty, outdated, and arbitrary parts of our living rules, but owners seem to confuse them with the CCNRs. So really, it's up to your association. If you want to have rules and regulations for your community, sometimes it's a shorter, easier document for owners to read and it helps ensure compliance when you just have a one-page set of rules or two-page set of rules. But really, it's up to you as your majority of your board as to how you want to handle having rules. So are they necessary? Not necessarily. We have some clients that don't have rules. We have other clients that have rules and it's really helpful tool to get compliance by your owners. Next question, number 15. Can our condom association restrict or prohibit political signs on common area grounds? We are row-style homes with common area front yards where residents have placed signs in the past. Okay, so it would be interesting to know, is a front yard like a limited common area or is it a, like completely a common area of the association? That would be an important question for me to have the answer to. And I also don't know if you are you saying you're a condo association. So typically in a condominium association, you can only put political signs in the areas that you own, possibly limited common elements. But if it's only association common elements, they would not be able to put political signs in that area. So what I would recommend is that you have an attorney take a look at your documents and determine whether this area is common area or a limited common area. And then determine where owners can be placing legally political signs on their property under state law. 
Next question, number 16 from a board member. How can we change our CCNRs to fund for extraordinary expenses? Will state law ever allow for easier changes to the document? So right now, you have to look at what your specific CCNRs say for the amendment provision to determine what the percentage of owners that you're going to need to have vote yes to amend your CCNRs. There have been bills introduced in the past in the Arizona legislature to lower the amendment requirement in CCNRs, but we haven't seen one pass that would be a bright line rule for all associations. It may come in the future, but right now it's not the law. So you'll want to look to what your association's CCNRs state to determine what percentage you need to amend your CCNRs. And number 17, I have a question from a spouse of a board member. All rental property, it does not matter if it's short-term rental or long-term rental, must be registered with Maricopa County. So I agree with that statement. And that's, you can go to, or any county in the state of Arizona, you can go to the assessor's page. And there's information on how rentals, all rental property, short-term, long-term, can register with the county and it's an important revenue source for the county because landlord owners have to pay taxes on each rental. If that is true, this is a question, and I report a neighbor who's been renting their property, but it's not registered with the county, can the property owner find out specifically who turned them in? That probably would be a good question for the county. I don't think that they keep track of who makes complaints on this. I do know they investigate the complaints. It's possible that at public records requests, they might be able to find out that information. So I, I don't have the answer. The county would know the answer on that, but I'm kind of doubtful that they would keep that information. But I could be wrong. No, Dasson. Okay, next question, number 18 from a board member. Our Planned Community Association must hold an election every year for all five board members under our CCNRs. We are just out from developer control, and this will be our first member board election. Four of the five plan to run again in 2023. When sending the recruitment nomination letter to all homeowners, is it appropriate to disclose the fact that four are rerunning and their names? Um, a lot of associations do indicate on the ballot. You know, I'm not really sure for the recruitment nomination letter. I suppose you could say that these four candidates have, these four current board members have expressed an interest in running and were soliciting anyone else in the community who wants to run, that's fine. If you want to say something like that and disclose their names, that's fine. Sometimes associations will put on the ballot the names of all the candidates that are running and they'll indicate who's an incumbent. And so that's fine too. Question 19 from a board member. If fewer owners volunteer to serve on our board of directors, then the minimum number required by our CCNRs, just three, can we operate with less without legal entanglements? So you already have a pretty low number of board members, right? Three. So I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't go down to one because that's less than a quorum. You won't be able to do anything. So I guess the question is, can we operate with two? Is two out of three is quorum for your association? You have to check your bylaws to make sure that's quorum. But if I had to guess, usually it's the majority of the board is quorum. Can we operate without legal entanglements? Yes, because you're still quorum with the two. But I really would recommend that you try to get three because it makes it more difficult. You'll 
never, you won't be able to have a meeting if one board member can't show up if you only have two board members. And it looks bad to people to be making policy decisions for your entire association. Next question, number 20, is from a manager, community manager. Can a board member be behind on dues and still be on the board, even though the CCNRs for our association do not address this situation? I'd also want to check the bylaws for your association, because sometimes bylaws will talk about an owner being delinquent or and then not being able to serve on the board. And so, maybe we're even a little technical difficulty. You still can hear me. If you can't hear, make sure you're putting a notice in the group chat or on Zoom or on Facebook Live. Make sure to make technical correction. Okay, so can the board member be behind on the dues? Check the CCNRs, check the bylaws. Most association documents, unfortunately, do not address the situation. So, from a legal perspective, a board member can't be removed by the board for not being current on their assessments in most associations. Now, sometimes we'll have a situation in an association where we have a board member that doesn't pay. And then what happens is we amend the bylaws to include provision saying, if you're going to put in the payment of any amounts owed to the association, you can't serve on, cannot serve on the board. Is it bad policy? Does it look bad? Is it a breach of fiduciary duty possibly for a board member to be violating the documents by not paying? I do think so. And I think it's very bad for the community, bad precedent, bad optics. So if you're in that situation, I would recommend to get the association's attorney involved to get that board member to pay or maybe voluntarily resign. Okay, question 20 is from a board member. Can HOAs fine owners for their kids' bad and dangerous behavior at the pool or other common areas? Generally speaking, yes. In most associations, CCNRs, if an owner or their guests or their invitees has caused damage to the common areas, the owner is responsible for that damage. And we can find the owner for violations of the CCNRs. Now, diving into a pool, climbing on walls, climbing on pool ladders, it really needs to be very clear in the rules that this is a violation. I would give them a warning, of course, before you find them and then make sure you follow state law before you find them by giving notice of the violation and an opportunity to be heard before you let me decide. Okay, next question is from somebody who is very close to me, a good friend of mine and also a relative of mine who serves on his board in Arizona. So great to see you here today. And the question is, is the open forum for homeowners to speak at the open session of a general monthly board meeting required or optional? Generally speaking, it's optional, but I've got a little caveat on that. So remember, under Arizona law, before the board takes formal action on any item, the board is required to give owners who wish to speak the opportunity to contribute and speak. So anytime the board makes a motion and there's a second and the board's discussing an item before voting, the owners have a right to speak and give their input on that particular issue. Now, the owners can exercise that by saying, yeah, like make a comment on this, or maybe the board can open the floor to the owners and ask if anybody wants to make a comment on this. So if your association decides not to have an open forum in the meeting, 
I mean, usually the open forum, we call it the homeowners forum, it's before the meeting starts. And give owners maybe a minute or two to make comments. If your board decides not to do that, you're definitely going to have to be sure to, if any owner wants to talk before the board takes formal action on an item, you're going to want to make sure you give the owners opportunity to do that. Now, what some boards do is they just knock that comment period out in the open forum and the agenda is very detailed so that owners know what's going to be on the agenda, what's going to be voted on by the board, and the owners can make a comment during the owner forums. The board doesn't have to stop the meeting and ask the owners if they want to contribute before the board meeting. So generally speaking, no, you don't have to have an open forum, but keep in mind if you don't do it before it takes formal action, you have to open the floor for owners to comment. Okay, the next question. We have an owner harassing another owner. And that particular owner, we don't have any proof, though. Only the homeowner complained about the harassment. The board has gotten several emails from the harassed owner, asked the board to do something. We sent out an email to all homeowners to be kind and neighborly, to have a pleasant place to live. How should we remedy this? Okay, this is kind of a sticky wicket. And here's why. Usually, I would say if you have an owner allegedly harassing another owner, there has to be some proof for the board to take action, right? Like a copy of the email that was sent or maybe a written report by the homeowner documenting what happened or a voicemail or video or something showing that there actually has been some bad behavior or harassment. So without that, it makes it complicated for the board. We don't have any evidence. We're taking word from one owner to another owner. That makes it complicated for me to write a opinion letter because I don't have any. And so I guess we have to look at the evidence that's been provided. What we may want to say to the owner that's complaining, just based on the facts that we have here, no proof, complaining, we appreciate you bringing this to our attention. Please provide us with evidence so that we can better evaluate this. Or maybe this is a homeowner to homeowner issue and you need to consider your legal remedies against the owner without any proof. It's really not something that the association can be involved in. I think what you, how you've handled it to date has been perfect. I want to just mention one other thing, that if this owner that's complaining that they're being harassed is a protected class under the Fair Housing Act, and that would be somebody that's handicapped. Handicapped is broadly defined under the Fair Housing Act. If they're being allegedly discriminated based upon their race, national origin, families with children. If the harassment is due to one of those fair housing type violations, discrimination based on a person's protected status under the Fair Housing Act, the association may have an affirmative obligation to act. But again, we have to have evidence and the affirmative obligation to act is we have to do something. We have to send a letter to the person that's alleged discriminating to proceed to complain and to cease and desist as long as the evidence is legitimate and accurate. So I just want to mention that there may be a time where we do have to act, especially if there's potentially fair housing discrimination complaint and the reason that the person's being harassed is because they're a protected class under the Fair Housing Act. Okay, next question, number 24. Our board elections are coming up in January and we have a homeowner that is a bully and has been sent a letter to cease and desist, among other things, over the last six years. Can this person run the board? 
Generally speaking, yes. Usually the qualification to run for the board is that you have to be a record owner. And so if this person is a record owner and they meet the qualifications of your documents, you can't prohibit this person from running. If the person's elected and they engage in bad behavior, then you only get legal counsel involved. You may need to remove this person from the board. And that would have to be done pursuant to state law, which requires a membership, a petition, and a vote of the membership. Okay, next question. Number 25, may a board meet in executive session without a director present if they suspect that the director is leaking information from closed meetings? Is a formal legal intervention necessary? So we talk about this often when we're teaching a class on the duties and responsibilities of board members. And we talk about the three duties that are really important when you're serving on your board. And it's the duty of care, the duty to avoid conflicts of interest, and then the duty of confidentiality. So this obviously is a problem if you have a director that is leaking information to third parties, a breach of the duty of confidentiality, which is specifically outlined in the Nonprofit Corporation Act, which applies to most associations are nonprofit corporations. 99% of them are, so that statute's going to apply to you. And how do we handle it when we think a director is leaking information? So I think a first line of defense would be for the president to raise the issue at a board meeting. And I think you want to get your legal counsel involved. You can do this during executive session. I think it's important to have that person there so that we can hear their perspective and you hear whether they deny it, or maybe they need a refresher on the fact that they need to keep confidential information confidential. If they continue to do this, you may want to consider adopting a code of conduct for your board. And you really, you only need a majority of the board to adopt the code of conduct. And that would specifically outline different legal remedies that we have if the board member continues to confidential information from the executive session meetings. We had a great cheat sheet on, you know, this very topic on the code of conduct for board members. You can find it on our website at lkhemawfirm.com. So I'd encourage you to take a look at that. Look at your legal counsel and to strategize on how to best handle this. Now, should you have a meeting to talk about this board member and not tell that board member who's leaking information about it? I don't think I would do that because that's a wrong. That's, you know, something that all board members should be entitled to get notice of a board meeting. Now, if we're going to be taking legal action against board member reaching their duty of confidentiality, I think that board members there so we can share their side. And if the board wants a confidential discussion after that board member is given an opportunity to state their position, legal counsel or the manager can ask that board member to leave while we confidentially discuss it. But I wouldn't go behind that board member's back meeting. I think that's just going to be a big headache for you and it's just not proper. Okay, number 26, I'm a board member. What are the caveats for amending our CCNRs to require 95% voter approval to dissolve the condominium? Okay, so I'm familiar with your association and actually your legal counsel. And so what I want to just mention is the way that the new statute is written, and I want you to go back and look at the cheat sheet that we shared with you at the beginning of this presentation that talks about how to terminate a condominium. You dissolve a condominium. That high voter percentage is going to be for 
new condominiums that are created after that statute went into effect on September 24th. And so what I would recommend is if there's inclination in your association to dissolve your association, you need to first look at what your documents say as first line of defense. And if there is nothing in there on that, then we would look to state law, but you're going to be subject to the old law on this because your association was created for September 24th, 2022. And I believe that percentage is much lower, like 67% to dissolve the association, but your association's documents would be controlling first in this situation. Okay, question number 27, and just to give you a little bit of a read where we are on the questions here, we have 47 questions and now we're up to 60 people on Zoom, which is awesome. So we are looking forward to the next question now. Okay, question is from an architectural committee member. We would like to use email as an elemental method for official communication with our members. Emails were not an option when our bylaws were written. And it says that written notice of each meeting shall be given by the secretary or person authorized by the board by hand delivering or mailing a copy of each notice. Postage prepaid at least 15 days, but not more than 50 days before such meeting to each member. Do we have to change the bylaws, which require a 50% community vote, or can we pass a resolution clarifying notice? Okay, so this is a tricky question because state law actually talks about the notice requirement, and it's a little bit different than what your document states. So state law is not less than 10 days before the meeting, not more than 50 days before the meeting and membership. Notice has to be provided to the membership of special meetings special meetings of the membership or the annual meeting. And that can only be done in person, getting the notice in person or by U.S. mail. So trying to go around that by doing an amendment to your bylaws isn't going to work. But if you are going to amend your bylaws, what you might want to do is make it consistent with what state law says and change the 15 days to 10. Okay, you still can send out an email reminder or a su supplemental copy by email, but we still have to follow what state law says. And at some point, that state law will, will maybe be amended to include email notice being sufficient. Okay, question number 28 from a board member. We are revamping our website so that most of it will be secured. For residents, there will be lots of opportunities for interaction, and we will have our resident directory on a secured portion. Do you have advice on the appropriate privacy policy in terms of use for an HOA? I think couple things on the resident directory, you want to make sure that people opt in to give their personal information. If they want to have that personal information on your resident directory, that would be some advice that I would have. In terms of what's available to the general public versus what's available to residents, you'll want to look at that issue you know, anything maybe like media minutes, financials would be on a resident's only side, making sure that a resident's account is properly protected so that another owner can get their balance ledger, et cetera. These are all probably really good questions for whoever's building your website to make sure that you're protecting the privacy of owners and also privacy of the association's business in general. And you may want to run by whatever the final determination is with your technology company who's building a website to make sure from a legal perspective, run it by your legal counsel to make sure that they agree with the decisions that you've made. Next question, number 29. Are cluster mailboxes, and this is from a board member, 
are cluster mailboxes the homeowner's responsibility for purchasing and repairing? If the United States Postal Service has maintained that purchasing and repairing for the past 30 years, the current postmaster in Goodyear has said that the burden is now the homeowner's responsibility. When 30 of the mailboxes in the cluster were vandalized, can the United States Postal Service just say it so without any forewarning or any notice in writing? I don't quite know. I have to see your association's documents on this, but when I would ask for clarification at the post office in terms of why did you pair this or just this for the past 30 years, if I had to guess, probably the developer purchased the mailbox cluster to begin with. And maybe gratuitously at the Postal Service, when there were maintenance issues, they may have fixed it gratuitously. This may be an association responsibility. So I would want to check the association CCNRs and take a second look at this to see if it's something the association may be responsible for maintaining. But I would get the background information for the Postal Service. I would also talk to the board about it and look at the prior meeting minutes. Maybe even more reach out to the prior developer if they're still around to ask for any background information on this. Next question, number 30. It looks like we have about 18 more questions. And number 30 is, if there is no mention of approving a resolution, action taken without a meeting and special assessment in the CCNRs or Articles of Incorporation, can they be added to the bylaws? So I really have never seen in the bylaws something on resolutions, ability to approve a resolution, you certainly can if you want to amend your bylaws to include that. Actions taken without a meeting, that's a sticky wicket because there are two administrative law cases in Arizona that say that taking an action without a board meeting absent or when there isn't an emergency circumstance that would allow the board to take emergency action is potentially a violation of state law open meeting law. So I, I would be really reluctant to advise a client to add a section to your bylaws or your CCNRs on taking actions as a board without having a meeting. Um, usually they call that like unanimous written consent. The only time I would add something on that would be to comply with what open meeting law says where there's emergency circumstance, we can suspend this requirement and take action. Special assessments, that needs to be in the CCNRs. That's not something you can put in the bylaws because that's an affirmative obligation to pay. And I would not, if I were helping you with this amendment, I would not advise you to put in the bylaws. It may not be forcible in the bylaws. That's something that needs to be in the CCNRs. Next question, 31 from a board member. Can the president alone approve a $5,000 maintenance assessment without the board's knowledge and approval? Or can the board approve the 5,000 estimate by email? So it just depends. Depends on how business is operated at your association. Some associations give authority to the president to make expenditures, put a dollar mark on it, discussed at a board meeting, and it's understood and agreed to in the minutes that this is allowed. Sometimes the managers given that authority, management contract. I guess without the board's knowledge and approval, that's a problematic thing here. That shouldn't be happening. Now, if it's an emergency and it's the summertime and we can't get a quorum of the board, we can't get any board members to respond and a tree just fell on the common areas and we get a tree removed, 
I'd probably be okay with the board president paying $5,000 to get that tree out there. Can the board approve an estimate by email? Not advisable unless it's an emergency. Next question, 32, from a board member. A homeowner is demanding pre-lawsuit damages from a common area tree that's mature, dropping blossoms into their pool. The tree previously was trimmed back from the wall. HOA hired a handyman, trespassing on the common area, and proceeded to hack off main limbs back to the trunk before being ordered off. In order to prevent a pending suit, the board is contemplating the removal of the tree and suitable replacement at the HOA expense. Would this create an opening for the HOA to then threaten the same suit for removal of the additional border trees? Okay, so this is a fact-intensive question. It's hard for me to follow what's going on here. But I guess a homeowner wants to be paid because a tree was dropping debris into their pool. I don't really see that being an issue here that I would be advising the board to pay anything on, not based on the facts given me. Looks like... I guess the question is, would this create an opening each week to threaten the same suit for removal of additional bordering trees? I have to look at the facts on this. Um, I don't know if you have trees that are dropping things at others, owners' yards. I don't know if it's causing damage. I don't know if you know, it's causing wall damage. There's a lot of facts here that I don't know. So you're going to have to reach back out to us and send me an email or something with additional facts so I can help you on this. Okay, question 33 from a board member. Regarding the new legislation affecting signage in HOA communities, are no trespassing signs allowed to be placed in individual front yards? An owner has a tree which she took exception to the HOA gardeners maintaining. This concern has been resolved by her contacting her own gardener in Arborist, yet the signage remains and consequently casts a negative ambiance in our small cul-de-sac so the new HOA legislation that just went into effect September 24th does not address this issue. This is a no trespassing sign. The new legislation deals with political signs pertaining to the association, like association initiatives, such as board elections or I mean, CCNRs, things that the board is voting on. A no trespassing sign doesn't fall into that category. What you want to do is look at your CCNRs and see if no trespassing signs are allowed or are they not allowed? Then if they're not allowed, then the board should demand that the owner. But question 34 from the board member. We have recently been told that as a board, we can vote on non-emergency issues by email between meetings and approve items such as architectural and landscape requests as long as the vote is unanimous. You have stated that only emergency issues can be dealt with between meetings. What is the correct protocol? So I'm conservative in my approach and advice that I give boards. And my conservative advice here to you is that you're violating the law. And here's my facts to back up my opinion. There are two cases decided by administrative law judges in Arizona that specifically address this issue in an HOA or condo where actions are be taken outside of a board meeting and two administrative law judges in the past five years have said that is a violation of the open meeting law in Arizona, the Condominium Act and the Planned Communities Act. And I think if you go back and reread the Condominium Act and Planned Communities Act, you're going to see 
specific language of the Arizona Open Meeting Law talks about the fact that it is the intention of this law that all decisions that the board makes need to be done in an open board meeting. So if you're making decisions in between meetings by email or approving items and trying to fall back on this unanimous written consent that's in the Nonprofit Corporation Act, just recognize there's two cases already that say you can't do this. And then look at the law itself, the open meeting law, and it's very clear this can't be done. And the Condominium Act and the Land Communities Act are more specific than the Nonprofit Corporation Act. And I think they trump the Nonprofit Corporation Act. So my advice to the clients would be, don't do this. You're, you don't want to test case in Arizona. This goes up to Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court of Arizona and lose and spend a bunch of money defending it. Do the right thing. The homeowners have a right to know what's going on and a right to listen in and open board meetings when the board's making decisions. The only exception is for emergency issues, and that's right in the Arizona Open Meeting Law. And if you want a deep dive on the Open Meeting Law, we have a great cheat sheet on this topic on Open Meeting Law in Arizona and how to follow it. Go to our website at lkhewlawfirm.com, and it gives you a great overview of everything you need to know about the Arizona Open Meeting Law. Okay, next question. When a homeowner, this is from a board member, when a homeowner asks in an open session board meeting why they only have access to the meeting agenda and not the full board packet, what is the appropriate answer? They stated they should have access to the complete packet due to it being an open meeting. Our open packets can sometimes be 80 pages long. So the answer we should give is that under Arizona law, we are only required to have the agenda for you at the board meeting. You are welcome to ask for a copy of the board packet and anything that is discoverable under the law will be provided to you after the meeting. You can make a request and we can provide a copy of that to you or do you want to see it after the meeting? There will be some things that will be withheld like the delinquency report, the violation report, if there's a pinning letter from your attorney, those type of things will be pulled and not provided to the owner because those can be held on the law. Now, I know that they're not going to be happy with that because they want to be following right along with you during the board meeting, but you're not under any legal requirement to do that. If you want to, certainly you can, but that's a lot of paperwork. And I don't know any associations there some that. Question number 36, as homes are going up for sale, a few are behind on assessments and or fines. No one is coming forward to us for disclosure. How do we protect ourselves and get paid or the fine corrected? So if you have owners that are delinquent in the payment of assessments, you should be placing a lien on their property. And that should be done once the assessment is 60 days behind, 90 days behind, properties for sale, do it the minute they're behind it all. So the title company should pick up that lien. And if they don't, now the title company is on the hook for not transferring the property with clear title. The fines are a little bit trickier. So the assessments, you should, the way to handle it is you should get the property early and then you're paid when the property is sold. If it's, the fines are a little trickier because under the law, you, the law says that in order to collect a fine, you have to have a judgment and that judgment is recorded. It becomes a judgment lien. So if you have fines on an owner's account, but you haven't yet gotten that judgment, 
recorded it to make it a judgment lien. They're making an argument that basically says that you don't have a judgment against us. Association doesn't have a judgment against the owners, therefore you can't collect it. And that is a good argument from the owner's perspective. One thing that you might want to do is when a home goes up for sale in your community, what I would recommend is that the board contact the owner and remind them that the owner and the realtor and remind them that they have a responsibility to contact the association to get a disclosure statement. And the disclosure statement will outline all the fees that are owed. Also, sometimes maybe the title company doesn't know who to contact. And you, if you are noticing the same title companies on all the sales, you may want to provide them the association's information. If you're under 50 lots or units in your association, which you may be, the owner is responsible for providing the disclosure statement, not the association. But I think if you contact the realtor and say there are issues that need to be resolved prior to this close of escrow, and you're asking that at the time of the sale, they will contact us for a disclosure statement, the realtor is going to have a responsibility then to do that. Okay, next question. There used to be five board members and do some resigning. We ended up with just two left of the five. So you're less than a quarter now. The two board members that were last on the board just decided that they would add one more member and go to three. Is this legal? Probably yes. So if you had five board members and you had three resign, two is in a quorum. But usually there's a provision in the bylaws that says that whatever the, whoever the remaining directors are, even if it's just one, they can appoint replacements to the director's positions that have resigned. So probably that is okay. Even though they've only done three, maybe they can't bring five. Just as long as they have quorum, that's sufficient. Of course, you should try to have five, but sometimes that's just not possible. Okay, next question. The board has seen that a homeowner has started to run a business from his home. Our CCNRs do not allow businesses, and he claims it's just a hobby that generates income via online sales and selling at community events. Is there anything that the board and community manager can do to stop this? We're afraid that other homeowners will want to do the same if we turn a blind eye to this. We are aware that other homeowners operate small businesses that don't generate traffic or have employees. So I think that there's some important follow-up questions that I would need to know. Okay, so this homeowner you're saying started to run a business. Your CCNR is saying no businesses. Apparently, he's just doing online sales and selling at community events. So I'm not hearing that there's employees coming to the property or that there are a lot of trucks delivering inventory, things that would be causing it since neighbors, the parking is caught up on the street. There's noise or there's smell that's emanating because of this. Or there's trucks all day, every day, dropping off merchandise. I guess my question is, you're aware that other owners operate businesses that don't generate traffic and have employees. I don't know if that means this one does. I guess I'd have to look at the facts on this. What I will say is that these business prohibition cases are sticky. They're sometimes hard to win because it's not like a chiropractor operating a chiropractic shop out of the garage and you can't really see the business. It may be really difficult for us to enforce this provision against the owner, especially because we're allowing other owners to operate small businesses out of their house. 
And let's face it, since the pandemic, most of the workforce is now able to work remotely from home. Is that considered operating a business? So I need to know more about this and I'm going to be very cautious on how you proceed on this. Get your counsel involved for sure. Okay, question number 39 and cap a total of 49 questions. So we're down to our last 10. From a board member, um, now in effect for condos is that you need a high percentage of members to vote yes to dissolve the condo. What would the percentage be to dissolve a plan community? Okay, so to dissolve a plan community, you're going to look at the documents, say, for your plan community. The CCNRs typically will outline and the Article State Corporation will outline procedures. There is no state law for plan communities. Okay, next question is from a board member, number 40. Are there different requirements for what constitutes a majority for different documents and activities, such as a majority of the membership to approve CCNRs, bylaws, rules, and decisions made in a board meeting? So yes, you have to look very specifically at the language in the documents. So like how to have a board meeting. It's a majority board, typically it's quorum. So if you have a five person board, that would be three. How to amend the CCNRs. Usually it's a percentage of the total votes in the community. Sometimes you have provision in the documents, you know, look at the language very carefully and have your legal counsel weigh in on this. Sometimes it's just a majority of the eligible voters. Sometimes it's just a majority of a quorum that are required to cast something. So you have to really look at the language and get input from your legal counsel for each decision that your board is making by looking at the association's documents. Okay, next question. Our bylaws from a board member, our bylaws state that directors can be reimbursed for expenses. Our budget is $900,000. Do directors' expenses need to be approved for supplies under $100 at a board meeting? Does the president have the authority to spend on sandwiches for working meetings? Okay, so lots of different questions in this one. So can directors' expenses, can they? Can you just get reimbursed for them without being for under 100 bucks without having it disclosed at a board meeting? Probably yes, but there really needs to be a good paper trail in terms of the president needs to submit a receipt for what was purchased, why it was purchased, and then the check to the president should indicate, you know, what it's for, receipt, trace it right back to the receipt number. We do see allegations by owners of misconduct by board members. You may want to have passing mention of this in board meetings. If you do have people that you think are going to challenge it, it would just be a safe way to publicly disclose that have this director was reimbursed for this. And it's just a statement. And on. I don't think you to vote on it because to the bylaws will give the authority for the director to be reimbursed for these type of expenses, but it doesn't have that they were talk about that and we're going on it board meeting. Okay, next question, number 42. Explain why an owner has to occupy their newly purchased investment. So I'm not sure what where you're going on this. Sometimes I guess maybe where you're trained. I'm not aware of any loss. And that's the first thing that says that owners have to occupy property um, when they buy it. Sometimes CCNRs will have that provision in there. And if they have that in there, it's enforceable, especially if you bought it or in that provision. Question number 43, 
is Ford required, and this is from a homeowner, is Ford required to approve an updated reserve study or does it suffice to post it on the association's website? No, there really isn't a protocol for that. The board should vote to hire reserve specialists to get a new reserve study. And then when the reserve study comes in, they should discuss it in an open board meeting. I love it. If you put it on the website, that's great. Good information for your homeowners. We also have a great cheat sheet that our firm has on reserve funds that you can find on our website or we're sharing with you during this presentation today. Um, I would encourage you to that if you want to take more dive. Question number 44, longtime follower. Appreciate what you do and love watching your presentations. Often can't join due to time conflict. Excited to see you live. Well, thank you. Thanks for being here. What is your best recommendation for neighbor-to-neighbor disputes to be specific as it relates to construction projects and vendors, neighbors going on each other's property? At what level should the association management get involved or should they not at all? So we have a great blog on this topic that we're going to be sharing with you. And we also have the blog on our website. It's called Neighbor-to-Neighbor Disputes, Capdill versus McCoy's. So if you were tuned in at the beginning of this presentation today, and we talked about another neighbor-to-neighbor dispute, and these are tricky because they're facts-specific, right? If there's one of the parties that's being discriminated against, it's a neighbor-to-neighbor dispute, and one of the parties thinks that they're being discriminated against and they're kept in class and that their housing act, the association may have an affirmative obligation to get involved. And that may just be to write a letter telling everybody that harassment and if there's been proper evidence, your legal counsel should be involved if that's that pattern that we're looking at here. But sometimes it's just petty stuff, right? Catfield versus McCauley's like, okay, there's a construction going project going on lot A and they're not supposed to have the contractor there on Saturdays. And guess what? Trying to sleep in at Saturday morning and what do you hear? Bang, 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 bang. The contractor's there on a Saturday. So you jump out of bed in your jammies, go run over to their house, bang on the door, yell and scream, and now we've got a situation, right? Is that something that the association get involved in? Well, maybe if the CCNRs have a provision that says no Saturday construction, I think it's legitimate for the complaining owner to tell the board, hey, this was going on, and the board can remind the neighbor not to do that. What about neighbors trespassing onto another neighbor's property? This is a tricky situation. Really, you shouldn't be doing that. If the neighbor tells you not to come on their property, do not go on their property. The owner is the one that would force it, though. So if somebody's trespassing on property, another neighbor, they should call the police to enforce it. Okay, next question. We're getting down to the end. Question number 45. Our CCNRs indicate rentals. Our CCNRs indicate that all lots must be used exclusively for single-family residential use. No gainful occupation, professional trade, or other non-residential use shall be conducted on any lot. The section shall not include the residential leasing or renting, renting of a lot for month-to-month or longer terms. Our board has been told this wording does not allow the HOA to restrict prohibit short-term rentals of less than 30 days. Do you agree that our current session does not allow us to prohibit rentals less than days? I don't know. I'm looking at this and I think it does not preclude the residential leasing or renting a lot from month to month or longer terms. 
it's a weird way to do it because it's not precluding the residential leasing. That's the first part of it. And then it says, or renting of a lot for months and months or longer terms. I think because it says it does not preclude the residential leasing or renting of a lot for months to months or longer terms. I mean, I guess an argument could be made that you can only do months to months or longer terms. It would be so much better if that was clearer. I guess you could send a letter to the owner saying, hey, month to month, I find it. And we don't think this is nightly transient rentals. And if somebody challenges it, just recognize the language that are worded. So I think it's, I probably would still enforce it with a letter at least. And if, you know, it's going to go to litigation or we're going to go to the Supreme Court of Arizona, I'll tell you that I'm sure you win because month to month is not as clearly defined as I would like it. Minimum 30 days rental would be my preferred language. Next question, is the board meeting specifically for the board to conduct business or is it really for homeowners? And does it matter how the board sits at the meeting? Okay, so the board is really to conduct the board business. That's the purpose. The homeowners have a right to attend, listen, and participate. But this is the time, game time, the board, they're making decisions to run the business of the association. So homeowners are allowed to listen in, but it's really the board taking the action. Does it matter how the board sits at the meeting? I'm laughing about this because I had this situation at my association when I was president. So I'm guessing maybe the board sits at the meeting and maybe they y'all look at the homeowners or something, or they have their backs to the homeowners. And that may be annoying to the homeowners. We actually had that at my association where I lived. And when I became president, I asked the board to stop doing that and to face the homeowners because we answered to them. And it got a lot of pushback from the board from that. It kind of was so ironic to me because it just seemed like a common sense thing to be polite to do that. Um, now with the pandemic, we're on Zoom most of the time, so I don't have to manage that anymore. But I really do think as legal counsel for the association, we are elected by the members. And for us to be rude and have our backs to the members is not acceptable. So does it matter how the board sits the meeting? From my perspective, yes. Is there a law that says they have to sit a certain way? No. Okay, number 47 are T-bills, treasury bills, a safe investment for associations. I am not a financial provider. I don't know enough about treasury bills to give a good answer on that. What I would do is talk to a financial advisor, one that's not financially interested in benefit from selling you T-bills and gets advice on that. Question number 48, we have a board member who refused to sign a code of conduct that was adopted by the board. What recourse do we have? I would turn, if they refuse to sign it, no need them to sign it because the majority of the board adopted. If they refuse to follow it, that's a different thing. Then get the council involved to write a letter and potentially think about doing petitions to remove them if the breach of the code of conduct is serious. Question 49, last questions, because I'm going to go back and revisit that number eight. If a homeowner places an association political sign in the common area, how do we deal with the sign? Does a board member have to remove it? Who can remove the sign? So what I would do is I would just ask the homeowner to remove it within a certain time period. And if the homeowner doesn't do it, then just have the manager or board do turn the sign or something and make sure that they know. No problem, you could put this on your property. 
um, that this can't be on common areas. Okay, so I'm going to go back up to number eight. I think there was a statute that I was asked to interpret, and it's a very long statute, and it talks about limits on regulation of vacation rentals and short-term rentals, et cetera, et cetera, transaction privilege tax. Why don't we have whoever asked me this question, it was a member, and we were talking about, does this section override your CCRs? I don't have your CCRs, so I don't know if this is going to apply to you. What I can tell you is that that transaction privilege tax is, has to be paid. And so I don't think your CCNRs would override on any payments in the state. That's probably the most information I can give based on the question. Okay, so we had a great class today. We had 49 questions. We had over 60 people in attendance. So thank you so much for being here today. It's always wonderful to see so many people who care so much about their communities, homeowners, owners, board members, managers, and wanting to know information so that they can make good choices and decisions regarding your association. So appreciate you being here and taking the time. We made it just under the wire. We did it in an hour and a half. It's one hour, 29 minutes in, which is awesome. That's always our goal to finish this an hour and a half. There is a rebroadcast of this. You can find it right away on our Facebook page as soon as we end this session. So go to the Mulcahy Law Firm Facebook page if you want to listen to something again or you want to share it with your board. We'll also be posting our seminars and other things that we do on our website. So make sure that you check those out as well. I wanted to give you just a quick reminder. I heard a lot of questions today about outdated CCNRs and what's the procedure. So don't forget to check out our cheat sheet on amending CCNRs, a five-step plan. Also, don't forget that we have our free 15-minute review. So if you're in the market to potentially update your CCNRs, send us your CCNRs, send it to me at bmokjahimawfirm.com, and we'll do a free 15-minute review for you of your CCNRs and give you suggestions on things that you changed and the percentage that you need to amend your documents. And don't forget, one last reminder, we've got a couple of Upcoming seminars in October, virtual seminars that you can join on Zoom or Facebook Live or at least one of them. We have our firm's virtual HOA Condo Academy class coming up on Tuesday, October 18th at 11 a.m. And then we're also teaching a class for the City of Scottsdale and the Neighborhood College on the 20th of October. So go to our webpage to check out when those classes are and sign up for them at kihewallfirm.com. Click on the seminars page. And don't forget that our next First Friday live virtual event is going to be Friday, November 4th. And hope you'll join us for that if you have any questions. So hope to see you again in our upcoming classes later this month. Happy Halloween to everybody. Take care. Thanks for being here today. Don't forget our free cheat sheets are available for download at mulcahylawfirm.com. Please go to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and a review. 